I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Kay Patrick on their debut novel, Mrs. S. Kay Patrick is a writer based in Scotland. Their poetry has appeared in Poetry Review and Five Dials and was shortlisted for the White Review Poetry Prize in 2021, the same year that Kay was shortlisted for the White Review Story Prize. In 2020, they were runner-up in the Ivan Juritz Prize and the Laura Kinsella Fellowship. They were named an Observer Best Debut Novelist of 2023 and also, more recently, were named in the Granta 2023 list of Best British Novelists. Mrs. S is their debut novel, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Kay, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So first of all, tell me how you would describe the novel. Oh, God. Do you know, I knew I should rehearse this question before coming on. It's funny, I've been doing a little bit of press and bits and bobs for the book, and each time I'm asked to describe the novel, I stall. I don't know what that's about. Apparently, it's quite common with new novelists. But for me, anyway, it was a book that started out as a horny lesbian novel. And I think now has probably become something slightly more complicated around the themes of queer desire. Uh, it follows the story of a matron at an all-girls boarding school um, who's recently come across from Australia to work the job. And it's about their affair with the headmaster's wife uh, at the school, Mrs. S. And it's about how kind of the exchanging, the exchanging and projecting of desire, I think is how I like to think about it now, um, and it all plays out over the course of a long, hot, well, kind of a short, hot summer, actually. <laughs> Not quite long, but yeah. So that is how I try to describe it. But I feel like I always, um, I never quite say it right, but I think that's the general gist. That's the general synopsis anyway. I've heard you elsewhere describe it as horny fiction rather than erotic <laughs> fiction. Um, so what, what to you is the difference? I think I wanted to do something, especially with like the idea of sapphic, literature which I suppose Mrs S falls into this idea that horny is slightly more direct I think not that there's anything I've got nothing against the erotic obviously it's also very important but horny has a slightly more playful uh, a slightly less sometimes cold and intellectual uh, sense about it and I think that's what I meant and I, I, I think that it was also permission for lesbians to just be horny you know I think I think sometimes it's um yeah, it can be a bit cool and distracted, and that's all I meant by that. But now it's definitely haunting me. I think I said it in the Observer interview, and I called it a horny lesbian novel now. 
it's like the perfect shorthand for it really <laughs> so tell us where the where the idea came from originally for the novel it was during the beginning of lockdown i remember thinking about the book for a long time or a book anywhere that charted a relationship with the kind of intensity yeah with the kind of intensity and the, the kind of complications around perception and it, the idea that that as a concept anyway existed for a long time before I had the characters. And I think during the pandemic, I actually just had time to commit to writing it. One of those annoying people that wrote a book during the pandemic. There are a few of us, I think. And once I started writing it, I think I wrote one scene. Like I was, it was a scene from the middle of the book, or I think it might have been the first, the swimming scene. And from there, it kind of developed its own logic. And it was like the the book just took off. I didn't. It. I finished it quite quickly. I think just because of the nature of the style and the tone um is quite immediate very much the present tense um first person and i wanted it to be kind of laser focused on these two characters without too much backstory and without too much yeah a lot of introspection but also not the kind that you might expect it's kind of more bodily or more of the body is what i wanted rather than yeah more of the body we'll leave it at that well you said there not too much backstory and narrator <laughs> who we'll talk about in a moment they are unnamed. It's a first-person narrator, and they're an unnamed narrator. But nobody in the book is named. All of the characters have sort of descriptive names, but no actual names. And also, it's there's a couple of hints. Um, there's a mention of the 1980s at one point, um, but it's not necessarily like set in a definite time. There's, there's no sort of indication of what time it is as well. So just tell us something about that idea there's no names but also it's it's sort of vague in the time setting as well i think that the idea of naming and being named obviously is a very not complicated complicated is the wrong word but it's a very essential thing to queerness in some ways because often you end up choosing a new name for yourself or the things that you feel aren't necessarily represented by what they are called and i think that initially that might have been, I don't actually know why I did it to begin with, but all of this is in retrospect when I'm thinking about how the novel ended up coming together and why it felt more comfortable and more natural to write like that. I think it ends up leaving things as a site of potential rather than as a closed off thing. But then again, we'll need a backstory that in text becomes very committed to. And I think there's something about writing that I, I find that difficult to do and I don't necessarily like doing it because I want there to be a bit of freedom of movement, um, which sounds ridiculous because if you're writing of course you're committing something to the page and there's only so much you can get away with not explicitly saying what it is and how it's working and what it's doing but I think I was interested to experiment with that idea anyway this idea of ongoingness and which is especially essential to the protagonist story which I hope comes across in the ending as well which I won't mention here just in case people haven't read it I guess yeah I think that idea of yeah not having to be committed to a name sometimes is just freeing in and of itself and being able to yeah have that freedom of movement too, I think, within the text, especially when you're talking about queer bodies. Yeah. And something about the, the time setting as well. Well, the time setting. Now, I'm happy to leave this open to perception. I think when I was writing it, I was half thinking about sort of the 90s. But I know there are also a few markers in the text that put it into the 80s, at like the dingo backstory. Well, not really backstory, just the mention of the dingo stuff. Although I feel like that kind of was in my consciousness at school, which was the 90s. Um, in the early 2000s again like it wasn't I, I didn't necessarily mean to go for a timelessness I think to me I really needed the it was desire that was the most important focus and how that functions and I felt like if you commit yourself to a specific 
moment in time and I wanted to be in time without phones as well and if you're doing that the specifics of place can become quite distracting and for me and I was talking to another um, writer Camilla who's on the grand list about this or she was talking about it on a panel that we were on recently and she was saying that also you have to control or be in control of so much more and it's not necessarily appealing when you're writing something that's you don't want to be held up to the fact itself I guess is also what I meant and within the book facts are also something that aren't I'm really waffling now but it's I've been thinking about it a lot for the second novel as well this idea of fact and what it means and who gets to establish them and I think maybe that's also why I'm, I avoid I avoid fact too this makes me sound so pretentious I avoid naming places and I avoid facts but I think they're probably both connected I didn't want anything to distract I mean in it in its most practical sense I didn't want anything to distract from the plot with the two with the protagonist and Mrs S it had to be about them and their bodies and their desire. And I didn't want much else to come between that, I guess. So, and narrator then, tell us more about who they are. They're, well, how old do I say that? I think I say they're in their early 20s, 22. They have already come into their own queerness. Uh, they may have a developing sense of who they are, like we all do, I think, but they are definitely out. And that was important to me as well. They've just arrived from Australia. And I think they had kind of had a sense or kind of an idea of what their time at this English boarding school, which of course is also home to a famous dead, much dead author. And it's not quite lived up to any of that. And they kind of find themselves thrown into a world that's really affected by class and complications of like an all girls boarding school in England. And I think that's also why the girls ended up becoming more of a Greek chorus and individuals. I think sometimes I had this idea about this mass femininity or these mass feminine ideals, I guess. Uh, and they're trying to navigate all of that whilst also having a massive crush on Mrs. S, the headmaster's wife. <laughs> and I mean, this is a trivial point, really, I guess, but I wanted to ask why Australian? Um, just because it's something that I know happened. Uh, like there was actually, uh, it was a way to get a visa in the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe earlier than that, for Australian uh, people to come over and get jobs at these all-girls schools that were like in really remote parts of the UK and often uh really poorly paid like you know I, it just was a it happened to be and i also wanted this person to not be familiar with the environment so it's able to be processed almost for the first time outside of that kind of nostalgia british nostalgia it needed to be something that was like in the immediate as well when i tried to write it a different way it didn't work because the processing had to function with more past does that make sense so to have somebody who was fresh into that very condensed claustrophobic environment was really important and it kind of gave a way to let that environment be filtered through and processed in the immediate. Let's talk about Mrs. S then, who is the the headmaster of the school's wife, um, has some sort of function at the school, but it's a bit vague, and is the is the object of our narrator's desire. So tell us something about her. Mrs. S was the most complicated character to write, actually. She when I had the first draft of the manuscript, read the first run of edits, asked that I flesh that out a bit more bit more which was like also my instinct with it because importantly within the story she's like the desires of the protagonist are mapped onto her in a way so she is only partially real she also gives nothing away and that's part of which offers the ability to have this desire mapped onto her as well so having to create a character that felt fully formed out of that was quite difficult and in the end i think she ends up being somebody that probably it's i think Desire for both of them is complicated in different ways, but I think for Mrs. S, it's maybe more of a trapping. Like I think that she sees a way not out. I think she 
wants to have these multiple selves and doesn't know how to do it. You know, she wants to have it all, really. I don't know if she's... I had couldn't really decide whether she was motivated by fear or what she's motivated by. Fear feels a bit cliched. I think sometimes it's far more complicated than fear to not... Yeah, different levels. I think shame functions so differently for both of them as well. Um, for Mrs. S, we don't quite get to see it in the same way because obviously it's a first-person narration, but you can have the kind of suspicion of it, I hope. And she's somebody that tries very hard as well. I think she's trying hard to connect in the school, trying hard to connect with the girls, also struggling with the power dynamics of a heterosexual relationship. And I think, you know, she wants to assert herself as somebody of importance, not only to the girls, but also to the institution and trying to also navigate that. Where it's like, how do you stay loyal to both? I think loyalty is an interesting question for her as well. And yeah, the sense that maybe she was somebody different before, but never really getting close enough to that as well. Uh, and she doesn't bring it into focus either, which felt important to the text too. And just one other character that I want to talk about, absolutely wonderful mm-hmm. character, I think, who is a, a, another employee of the school, the housemistress. Tell us <laughs> what role she plays for our narrator. The housemistress is truly the runaway favourite. Everyone that I've talked to about the book is like, oh my God, the housemistress. I think like, in a way, she expanded out. Like I, I think I had to have this, I needed the, the protagonist to have kind of an ally in the school. I wasn't quite sure how that should function. And then I came up with the housemistress, who in a way is like an homage to every single gay PE teacher that I suspected I ever had when I was first figuring out my sexuality. And I think a lot of the book is also based out of queer fantasy, which is something that I'm still thinking through, where you're often, you're writing from a place that, you know, as a, as a queer kid, you spend a lot of time living inside fantasy. And I think I also want the book to exist within that realm as well. I still don't know what quite what that means because I know that lots of novelists write from a place of fantasy, but with queerness, it feels so direct somehow. So yeah, the, the housemistress, just like this butch PE teacher who's also very gentle, very... I really wanted her to be parental, very motherly. It felt very important to me to have that in the text too. And she has really incredible instincts, I think, too, which is like, to me, also feels like a very queer feature sometimes. And sort of takes care of the protagonist, also takes a piss out of her. Just felt like a very familiar character to me, which I think is why she ended up being so popular. Has ended up being so popular because I think a lot of people know or have hoped to know somebody like the housemistress in their kind of queerness within their queerness. And she's got it's good. Like the, she has a different set of morals, which I love about her as well. She's able to offer up a different sense of morality and morals, which is so different from the ones that you grew up with. I think too. The ideas of right and wrong in the house which is, are so different. They're so stretched. But yeah, I think that's the housemistress. I'm glad that she was able to become so essential to the text in the way that she did because it wasn't the plan to begin with. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Kay Patrick, and we're talking about their debut novel, Mrs. S. And Kay, let's talk about the school, the actual setting of the book for a moment. And you mentioned in the first half that it is there's this figure of a of a dead author that hangs over the history of the school. Um, is the school itself based on a on a particular place? Yes and no. I think it's familiar to a lot of different English boarding schools, or at least I hope it is. I wanted it to be, yeah, I wanted to be able to play with that idea of nostalgia, which I think exists in so many of those institutions that we're all becoming a lot more familiar with now. Something that sort of holds people to a certain time and a certain place, and a lot of them do celebrate long dead authors, which, or, you know, politicians or whoever it is, which is why I also wanted to have this dead author kind of presiding over the school still. That kind of means something to the protagonist, but not a lot to the actual girls who go there, or at least not in any way they're willing to admit. And instead, just it becomes kind of emblematic of like maybe a tradition that should be let go of, I suppose. And the idea of a boarding school too felt such a dreamy, and so many authors have done it before me, but it's such a dreamy place to write desire from and through. You know, I, the books that I was, one of the books that I read a lot while I was writing was um, Flo Yegi's Sweet Days of Discipline, which of course is set in a boarding school and novella and has these two students that, one of which kind of is steadily obsessed with the other. Um, and it's not sinister. It's not, it's just like compressed by the environment within which it's playing out. And I think that's why a boarding school gave this like perfect backdrop to how, yeah, to how large those feelings can become, I think. And also allowed me to have kind of a boiling pot, you know, a pot on the boil uh, in terms of plot the whole time because there wasn't, there were only so many places where they could be and they could go which I suppose makes it more exciting, also more stressful. <laughs> Places like important in, in terms of the natural setting as well, I think when I've gone back to read parts of Mrs. S now, I realise I also want it tethered to kind of uh, the natural as well, to be able to give that extension to the book's queerness too. 
a significant part of the of the novel is played out against the um the girls at the school who you've already described as basically they're always described as as the girls as sort of like one amorphous block but they're putting on a, a Lorca play and I, and I want to talk mm. about what the significance of that was oh I, I mean I, I I was worried that I was being too obvious that play in the book but I think Lorca popped into my mind just because it's such a like that play, especially the House of Bernardo Alba, it's very much about like repressed desire within a setting that's also about the not really about the feminine ideal, but it is also about like the restrictions and oppression of certain types of femininity, especially sexual desire. And it has kind of like this interesting matriarch at the helm. And it has the setting of the play itself is also just within these kind of four walls and briefly a courtyard and these fields where you can hear things happening around. But within the four walls is where the drama and attention plays out. And it's almost like it's because of, oh, not almost, but it is because of the way in which they're sort of trapped that it escalates in the way it does. So it felt like a good choice for that. But also that it's in some ways completely uh, not a particularly usual choice for girls of that age to be trying to play out and trying to match that level of desire and that kind of understanding of desire, having to match it as, I mean, in my mind, the girls are sort of 14, 15, 13, I can't remember what I said they were specifically in the book. And having to match that desire is, is also made for interesting writing. And this idea of like a man or a singular man to them was, and in the book, of course, that role is briefly played by the protagonist, which was really interesting for me in terms of gender and queerness and what the protagonist themselves is going through within the book too. And just one more thing. So what mm. of the writers might have been an influence on your work in this novel? The book that I bang on about the most, I, I think I, I was looking for queer texts on desire that um, were doing something different with language. And Robert Glock's Marjorie Kemp is just one of the, I mean, one of my favourite novels of all time. But when I wrote Mrs. F, I had it. I carried around a copy with me at all times, I think. And obviously, not obviously, but in that book, he sort of translates the manuscript that does exist from the 14th century of Marjorie Kemp, a woman who imagined she was having this um, ongoing affair with Jesus. It's very sexual. And so he sort of retells that story. And then within that story, he also tells the story of his own uh, love affair with a character called Elle. And he writes so eloquently in a way that I never could about what it means to be in that with somebody, about what it means to be desired object and to not be the desired object, how to move between those two gazes, I guess. And there's always one line from him that I carried that is in my head all the time when I was writing Mrs. S in terms of like pitch and pace and rhythm and in one paragraph, the protagonist, which I think I suppose is supposed to be Glock himself, um, although I'm not sure, is waiting for his lover Elle to get back in touch. And he just writes this one line, nobody knows what I put into my waiting. And I just think it's, it was just like, yeah, an extraordinarily simple but complex thing to be able to communicate like that. What else was I reading? I was also, I like I said, the Sweet Days of Discipline, I read two. Um, I read a lot of Violet Ledoc as well, La Batard, which... She obviously charts a few of the same-sex relationships that she had, and she does it with such intensity and such clarity. And she's able to sort of tumble inwards, which is something that I find really fascinating and something that I find really hard to do. Uh, well, to finish it off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so this is uh, early on in the book, um, and Mrs S and the protagonist, or Mrs S takes the protagonist to sort of a, a swim at a nearby like swimming hole that they walk to together 
um, and nothing's happened between them yet, and nothing will happen for a little while longer. But yeah, so I'll, I'll read from that chapter. We come out of the trees and stagger further down. The slope is steeper now, a sound of water increases. She crouches, picks a clover and bites behind its head. She doesn't offer or ask me to do the same. Instead, the flavour is announced, sweet, something like honey. Wonderful, she confirms. Her personalities catch like loose thread on a branch. The old-fashioned headmaster's wife and this person, setting her teeth to a stem's nape, stood tall in her pink shorts. Almost there, scree is loose under my feet, water appears, a clear river. Heather makes soft mounds. She whips through the bracken, points to a distant fell and suggests climbing it, not today, but one day. I am hopeful. We drop down onto a track. There is nothing but the rhythm of our shoes on the dusty surface, birdsong, breath, focused in the heat. I want to ask her how she, how they, found this place. But the quiet is too lovely. Familiarity, a new familiarity, this time bodily. Little clutches of fabric, the swipe of our thighs. This is it. At first I can't see anything, only slabs of grey stone. She moves towards a copse of only five or six trees, slender silver bark, green leaves. I watch her first, standing at an edge, peering down, pleased. It needed to be as good as she remembered. Without waiting for me, she removes her white shirt, each button a piece of my own spine undone. Her swimming costume is an athlete's, black, streamlined. I am surprised by her strength. She adjusts the fit, a finger slid underneath the short straps, then the place where the suit meets her hips. She catches me watching her, I blush. She calls to me. My anxiety has its own heartbeat. Desperate for the cool across my sticky face, I wear a sleeveless t-shirt, the binder hidden underneath. Underpants too, the t-shirts hem past my hips, stopping mid-thigh. You'll go in wearing that? Yeah, no costume. I didn't bring one with me. Never thought it would be this warm. Little did you know. She accepts my lie. My costume balled up in my underwear drawer. I no longer know how to wear it. I reach her at the edge. She has waited for my reaction. Below is a large waterfall, a pool eroded beneath it, bigger than I imagined, enough to spend time swimming to either side. Jeweled surface, a fish, brown trout, she explains, is visible deep on the stony bed. It's beautiful. It is. She clambers down and dives, muscle, water. Her back is a swimmer's back, all arch and grace. For a moment, I can't move. She doesn't hurry me, treads water, calm. I grip the edge with my toes. Promise myself I'll jump at the count of five, but only manage on ten, hopping forward. I can't make the same shape as her. Rush of rock at my back, relief of vanishing beneath the bright surface, t-shirt ballooning around me. I open my mouth to drink, to taste the cold, reappear to her face a few feet from mine. She smiles. There you are. We haul up to the waterfall, a large rock, partially submerged, able to be clambered onto, matching flex of our forearms, she admires my brawn and I pretend not to hear. We sit side by side underneath. She draws up her legs, the crease at her knee. Here she does not know, does not mind what she gives away. Water hammering our heads, necks. Without warning, she slips back in, completes a few lengths at speed, a front crawl. I float. If I could choose a different chest, I would choose this water. If I could choose a different body, I would choose this water. I say the last line aloud, river slipping on my tongue. What? She swims towards me, slowly, breaststroke now. What did you say? Nothing. But of course, nothing. She rolls her eyes, I roll mine back. 
So I've been talking to Kay Patrick. We've been talking about their novel, Mrs. S, which is out now in the UK from Fourth Estate. Kay, thanks so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, not a problem. Enjoyed it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.